attacking climate change and inequality have to be paired together. They have to come in tandem, particularly as we see cities being the major driver of each of those. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, along with my co-host, Vernice Miller-Travis. This is the third podcast in our series highlighting the 2016 National Funding and Resources training summit to revitalize vulnerable communities being hosted by U.S. EPA's Office of Environmental Justice in Crystal City, Virginia on October 25th and 26th. The summit is all about bringing the necessary investments to vulnerable communities so they can move from just surviving to thriving. If you want to learn more about the summit, check out their website at survivingtothrivingsummit.org. That's Surviving to T-O, thriving, summit.org. Good morning, Vernice. How are you today? Good morning, Mike. I'm great. And our guest today is Khalil Shaheed, Program Manager of the Urban Solutions Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council, also known as NRDC. So Khalil, you ready to dive in? Yes, I am. So can you share with our audience what the Urban Solutions Program at NRDC is about and what's its vision and objectives? So the Urban Solutions Program, we are fairly new, perhaps the uh, newest program under the NRDC umbrella. We're just over three years old now, and we work, as the name suggests, with cities and municipalities to make cities, neighborhoods, communities much more sustainable, walkable, and equitable. Our vision is working with cities where more than 70% of our population actually lives, also accounts for more than 70% of our carbon emissions that induce climate change. And so we feel that if we can tackle these issues at the urban scale, that we can have a large impact in addressing climate change. As you all know, our cities are also one of the leading sources or scales or locations that are driving our uh, rising inequality, both nationally, but also around the world. Much of the gap in wealth, gap in income, gap in affordability that is happening across our nation. It's really concentrated in our cities most heavily. And so we feel that attacking climate change and inequality have to be paired together. They have to come in tandem, particularly as we see cities being the major driver of each of those. Thanks, Khalil. So you're also serving on the planning team for the upcoming US EPA 2016 National Training and Resources Summit to Revitalize Vulnerable Communities. What is the purpose and goal of this summit? The goal of the summit is really to 
one, to highlight what's working in communities and to highlight those leaders at the local level that are actually driving that positive change and to be able to bring those communities, those leaders, those organizations together to be able to talk about their experiences, about what's working, what's not working, and then to come together with EPA and with others to begin to think about what additional resources, what support can be leveraged at the national scale to really support uh, what's going on in communities across the country. So Khalil, my understanding is you're in charge of a track on workforce development for the summit. Why is workforce development such an important component of the summit? It's just a key because when you think about what's happening, again, as I mentioned, when we talked about the sort of rise of these tandem crises, one of uh, climate change and then at the same time of inequality. And if we try to address the one without addressing the other, we may end up exacerbating one or both of them. And when you're talking about how people experience environmental degradation, how they experience environmental burdens, how they experience climate change, the threat to livelihood is one of the most pressing concerns, livelihood and home, I would say. The threat to livelihood can come either through, again, we're talking about climate impacts, extreme weather, natural disasters, or it can come from if we aren't thoughtful, if we don't have foresight in terms of how we actually address climate change, how we shift and, and how we transition our societies away from a fossil fuel driven economy to a more sustainable, a renewable energy based economy. If we're not careful about how we do that, we can really threaten the livelihoods of people who either A, rely on fossil fuel extraction for their livelihood, or B, you know, really for those communities that are counting on and really need economic growth, particularly in you know, low-income communities, communities of color that are still trying to pull many people out of poverty, that are still trying to integrate people into the labor force. They need a functioning labor market, a functioning economy that can absorb it and that, and that can provide livelihoods for their communities. And so, and so having this focus and being very deliberate about setting these targets and these goals for our communities is just key in enabling that transition to happen. That's fantastic. So what are some of the sessions you're developing for the summit in the workforce development track? The sessions that I'm working on, it's really for the second day. And so part of it is going to be a sort of targeted focus on, on looking at, you know, what's happening in key communities and really talking about ethnic communities, African-American, Latino, indigenous communities, just getting at, because the dynamics about how those communities interact with the labor market is really unique for those particular communities. Uh, you know, particularly if we're talking about African-American and Latinos, you're talking about labor crowding into very low-wage sectors. Latinos are overly concentrated in construction. African-Americans are overly concentrated in the service sector and also public sector jobs. And so what a just transition looks like and what type of policies and programs that we put in place to reach those communities and to serve those communities, it's going to look very different. If we're talking about indigenous communities, particularly those that are based in reservations, their attachment to to the labor market is going to be very different. They are a bit more isolated from labor markets, from jobs, from livelihood opportunities. And so again, how we think about just transition, how we think about building economies of scale, building livelihood options for those communities, it's going to look very different from, say, communities that are today relying on coal mining or, you know, relying on oil and natural gas extraction. And so how do you think we're doing with workforce development? Are there some good examples out there of good uh, workforce development that's occurring now? Yeah, I think so. I think there are two things. I think that there are very good anecdotal cases of workforce development. 
I think there are some cases in South Carolina. There are cases in Michigan. There are in California, Los Angeles. There are, I think, anecdotal cases. I think, you know, the question remains for us is how do we scale that up to an economy-wide perspective, you know, because despite all of the great work that's going on, most of the projections, if you follow the Bureau of Labor Statistics, most of the projections are still saying that over the next 50 to 70 years, overwhelming majority of the jobs that are going to be created in our economy are going to be in the lower wage service economy sector. They're going to be non-union, you know, they're not going to have great benefits, they're not going to have health care coverage. And so, you know, how do we overturn these broader trends in the national and the global, in fact, the political economy? And I think that's where we ultimately want the conversation to go. And the first session is, is going to focus on what's happening in these particular communities. And then, and then the second session, the last session of the day, is going to take that much broader view and think about the larger scale and what's happening and how these successes can actually feed into a much bigger and broader picture. So Khalil, you're originally from New Orleans and worked there post-Hurricane Katrina and Rita. The summit theme is moving communities from surviving to thriving. How's your hometown doing in this regard? We are surviving. (laughs) We are surviving. We are not thriving. As you all I'm sure no, and I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, Hurricane Katrina for some was viewed as an opportunity. And I think you have to understand what happened after Katrina in New Orleans in the context of urban development, much more generalized. And so many people saw what happened after Hurricane Katrina as an opportunity because cities by and large are forced to rely on increasing the value of urban land to drive economic growth. And the best way to do that, the fastest way to do this, is to make sure that you have a steady influx of well-educated, higher-income people, middle-class people coming into the city, building up demand, driving up the value of housing, driving up the value of land. And so there were many people after the storm who saw that as an opportunity to rid the city of its persistently poor populations and to remake it and try to attract this new urban middle class to really dominate and populate the city. And that really influenced a lot of the redevelopment patterns in the city. It influenced the way and where money flowed in the uh, reconstruction. And it's created a situation today where there are still many communities, my community, there are many communities and neighborhoods all over the city, the whole of New Orleans East, that are just really lagging behind and are still trying to get back on their feet now more than 10 years after the storm. And then you have other areas that were less badly affected by the floodwaters after Katrina that were really up and running very quickly. They were able to absorb a lot of the new investment that came in. They were able to absorb a lot of the new population that came in. And those areas, you would never know that that there was ever a catastrophic flood that wiped out 80% of the rest of the city. Well, there's a political dimension to that too, because I will never forget seeing former Louisiana Congressman Billy Tozan on Meet the Press the Sunday after the flooding. So people were still in dire distress. And Billy Tozan went on Meet the Press and had these GIS maps up of how Louisiana was going to change from a blue state to a red state as a result of the dispersal of population out of the city of New Orleans. And I was shocked. I was dumbfounded. I was like, first of all, 
Who did you get to run those maps so quickly? Or did you have those maps already? But how would you look at this scenario as one that could shift the balance of political power in the state between the Democrats and the Republicans, as opposed to focusing on how are we going to get people back up and running? He wanted to have a political conversation about how they could now switch from a a blue state to a red state. And just like he said, it is just like it happened, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it really impacted particularly both statewide, but you can really see it in New Orleans. And so today we have a white mayor for the first time in about 45 years. And prior to that, immediately after the storm, you had this hotly contested, very racially defensive election where uh, Ray Nagin won re-election largely because the black population after the storm saw that there were about 11 white candidates running for mayor who really saw it as an opportunity with the depopulated city to try to come in and sort of reshift that balance. And so a lot of the black community rallied around Ray Nagin for his second term when in the previous election, the majority of the black community actually voted for the former police chief of one of the most corrupt police departments in the country rather than vote for Ray Nagin. So that's how much of a shift that happened. And we can argue about whether or not it was rational or irrational, but that's the sort of deep-seated, there are just some emotionally charged and and historic and legacy issues that, that still drive a lot of the politics there. And that's what Billy Tozan was communicating. And it's shocking that he just had the gall and, and was just so open with it. You would think that they would be a little bit more clandestine, but really it wasn't. And it never really was. That's just what was said. And then what was done. Thank you for that update. And I'm sure our listeners are, are going to want to know what's going on in New Orleans and how does it fit within this overall conversation about moving communities from surviving to thriving. So Khalil, you've been doing a lot of work in the energy efficiency arena and how to address energy poverty and energy inequality. We focus on addressing inequity a lot on Infinite Earth Radio. How does inequality present itself in the energy context? I think when you're talking about efficiency, the primary way inequality shows up is just in the fact that low-income communities, disinvested communities of color are really forced to rely on a much older, a much less efficient housing stock that has been allowed to deteriorate because of redlining, because of disinvestment. And so those families, those households are going to end up paying more per square foot in utility costs for these older, less efficient homes. People relying on cooking stoves in the winter to heat the apartment, relying on plug-in fans and other appliances to cool them in the summer. And so that sort of history, that legacy of redlining, of racial segregation and disinvestment in these communities has really left a lot of our housing stock to deteriorate and left some communities with few options but to rely on that. And also, again, recall when I opened the conversation talking about the sort of dual crises of climate change and inequality, particularly in our cities as affordability gets pushed further and further to the margins of our urban communities. Again, people are forced to rely on less efficient, older uh, housing to provide shelter for their families. And that leads to a huge gap in energy efficiency. And then when utilities and others come in and they provide funding and services to upgrade buildings to provide uh, energy efficiency services to buildings, they look at these communities and say, well, it really costs too much to upgrade those homes because they're in such bad shape. So we're just not going to put any money there. We're going to put it into these middle-class homes that that are newer. It costs less to do. It's a lot lower hanging fruit. 
and we can just get in there, put some coke, change some windows, change, change the HVAC, and then we're done. Whereas these older homes in these lower income communities, the cost of the retrofit is so high that in many cases, utilities and others should simply avoid doing the work. And so they're just allowed year after year to continue to deteriorate. So what's the nexus between that reality and workforce development? One, workforce development and access to jobs allows people in these communities to get good paying, often uh, union jobs that will allow them to have better housing options. It will allow them to have more stable families to be able to invest in housing, and it will give them a much more solid footing, a much more firm footing to be able to work with utility providers, to be able to work with other service providers to actually begin to upgrade and to retrofit these properties. But then there's also the issue of utilities in aggregate across the country are spending over $12 billion annually in energy efficiency retrofits. So there's one, the question of spatially where those dollars are being spent. They're not being spent in the communities that need them most. Uh, But then there's also the question of that $12 billion is spent to do work. And so what is the contracting process within these utilities? Who's actually being hired to actually do that work? And how can we make sure that, again, the people who actually need work, the people who are actually capable of doing this work and actually servicing these communities are actually have an opportunity to bid for these contracts and actually get these jobs? And so that's sort of a sort of two-pronged approach there. Why do you think it's important for people from vulnerable communities to attend the summit? And what do you hope will result from this summit? I think, first off, this is sort of the environmentalist way of talking about things. You know, we like to talk about crises. We like to be sort of cynical about our reality and say, hey, you know, climate change is bearing down on us. So it's, you know, it's going to be devastating for the entire globe. We have to do something. And so, but I think this summit is actually being framed from, and I think what we're trying to highlight are really success stories, positive developments, things that we can all learn from each other. And so I think, you know, people should come to this summit because I think that they will get an uplift from hearing people's stories, from hearing about the work that colleagues, that communities are actually able to do. And I think that they will take a lot of good information back home to to their own communities and hopefully not only information, but also inspiration. So the next round of questions, Khalil, is what we call the lightning round question. So we're going to ask you three questions and we want you to say the first thing that pops in your head. (laughs) First one is, if you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to energy equity and more sustainable urban communities with living wage jobs, what would it be? Uh, One thing? One thing. We've been talking about this a lot internally, and I think my colleague and, and my former professor, Cecilia Martinez, has also articulated this very well. When we talk about energy efficiency in housing, we typically individualize it. We talk about it on a unit by unit perspective. And I think that we need to rethink that and really think about community and neighborhood scale retrofits. And so we need to think about how we can actually aggregate these things together and and really create community involved, community engaged processes to address not only the inequality, but I like to think that the sort of line between inequality and justice is that sometimes inequality or addressing equity 
can be ahistorical. And so a lot of our work on energy efficiency, it's trying to increase, say, from our project, uh, it's, it's trying to increase services from utilities to low-income communities, but it's not really addressing the historical aspect of it, the injustice of redlining, of segregation, of the devaluation of communities that have led to this deteriorated housing stock. And so I think taking that community perspective will allow us to, you know, and really force us to have to do that. And that's one thing. Indeed. So what one action could our listeners, the average person, take to build a more equitable, energy efficient, and sustainable future? One action would be you are a consumer. You are a customer to a utility, and that utility has an obligation to service you. And with these type of energy efficiency programs, most utilities are required to spend a certain proportion of their revenue on energy efficiency. And really, it's not that much. You know, the best practice is typically around 2% of the revenue should go back into energy efficiency programs. Most utilities don't get past 1%. And so I would start there to question and to look at what type of offerings does your utility have and find out if where you live is eligible for those properties and begin to question and to ask, you know, what type of offerings, what type of programs, what type of outreach is your utility doing to make sure that the contribution you're making as a consumer of that utility services are actually coming back to you? Because that's really the real injustice that's happening. Because, you know, when we talk about these low-income communities and we're trying to get utilities to invest more in energy efficiency in those communities. We're not talking about welfare. All these people are paying their bills. These are ratepayers. These are consumers. These are customers to the utility that are contributing to that utility's bottom line. But that utility isn't investing back into those communities at the same rate that they are investing in in other communities. And that's just the basic uh, inequity. And we need people to begin to question and to actually look into that and challenge them on that. So here's the last one, Khalil. If you're successful in the work that you're doing, what will urban communities look like 30 years from now? If we're successful, <laughs> there will be a great deal more efficient and affordable housing. And by affordable, you know, that could take on different forms. I, I think, you know, the way that we do affordable housing is counterintuitive. It just requires greater and greater amounts of subsidy. I am all for community land trust just taking land off the market altogether. I think more cities need to take that seriously if they're actually going to take the issue of affordability seriously, because otherwise cities are really forced to rely on driving up the value of urban land, which is counterintuitive to affordability. And so, you know, if we're going to be serious about affordability, I think that that's really one of the key things. I think that communities will be a lot more walkable. They'll be a lot more decentralized. I hope there will be a lot more park space. I think that, you know, cities, I hope in the future will have a lot more children than pets because families just simply can't afford to live in our urban areas. They move out to the suburbs because they need more space and it's more affordable. And we have a situation today where many of our larger cities actually have more pets than children. And that, to me, as a parent, is something distressful. And that New Orleans East will be thriving once again. Indeed. Thank you today for joining us, Khalil. We really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing and taking the time. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to you joining us next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com. 
or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.